0: Welcome back to Tom's Talmudish. Today we are going to learn about an ungrateful nation and many other things. And many other things. Before we begin, I want to gratefully acknowledge I have a special sponsor tonight has dedicated the merit, the schus of this evening's class for the merit and refuah shlema of Shmuel Yisrael ben Chana Sara. He should have a refuah shlema. Arichus yomim vishonim tevis, Long, happy, fulfilled years. And even when prognoses are not fantastic, we know... Hashem can do anything. So, Shmuel Yusol, it will be good news in Mitzvot. Okay. So, let us begin. We are back in Mesechet Sanhedrin and we're going to pick it up where we left off about two years ago. On page 94. Daftzadik Dalet. Omad Aleph. That's 94 side A of the page. And if you're looking in the traditional Gemara, it's just where the lines get very wide on the bottom of the page. And we're going to talk about the nation of Israel's lack of gratitude. Of course, not just because we like to talk about lack of gratitude, but rather there's a very important lesson that is going to be conveyed, as you will see. With no further ado. Tono Mishum Rabbi Papayos. It was learned in the name of Rabbi Papayos. You have it, Reb Martin? Got it, yeah? I think so. Okay. In the art scroll uh, edition, what it will be? A, 24, side A, 3, mm-hmm. something like that? 94A. 94A. So we learn in the name of Rabbi Papayis, It was a great royal disgrace for King Hezekiah and his associates. The word sayayto would best translate as associate. So it was a great genai, a great shame and embarrassment. What was the great shame and embarrassment? Shaloi Omru Shira. They didn't sing God's praises. Now, a little background might be necessary. Sancherif, who was a very evil and powerful man, built an incredible empire. It is known as the Assyrian Empire, it eclipsed everything that had existed before. And this Sanjarev was not only a master at warfare, but also about politics and human nature. What he did to cement his empire was displace everybody. Everybody became a refugee. Everybody became exiled. And he wanted to do away with the jingoism or patriotism that invariably springs from people living in the place they've always lived. I think a perfect example of this in our modern day and age would be the Soviet Union. After the dissolution of the Soviet Union, all of a sudden, countries that had not had independence in 70 plus years sprang to attention. And this tremendous patriotism and jingoism And we're seeing some of that play out right now in a very tragic way with the war that's going on in Ukraine. So Sanjarev wanted to make sure that his empire would last forever, that the sun would never set on his empire. So he'd exile everybody. And there would be no natural revolution, no natural rebellion. But of course his empire didn't last forever. In the end, Sanjarev, and his empire was crushed by a new empire that grew out of Babylon, the Nebuchadnezzar, and his people. Now, we'll learn a b- more about this in the coming episode, but Sancherav attacked the northern kingdom of Israel, which was the north part of the Jewish country, and he sacked its cities, pillaged, looted, destroyed, and exiled the entire population. That's the famous Ten Lost Tribes. By the way, we haven't really seen them since. And this is going back a very long time. Samkherov then sets his sights on the southern Jewish kingdom that wasn't called Malchus Yisrael, that was called Malchus Yehuda, Judea. The king is a great-grandson of King David himself. His name is Chizki historically known as Hezekiah. And Chizkiyahu is deathly ill to add insult to injury. If it wasn't bad enough to have your capital city encircled with 185,000 soldiers and an enormous army that was ready to take no prisoners, Chizkiyahu himself was deathly ill. And there was some very demoralizing things that happened to the Jewish people in the days before that year's Pesach's observance and celebration. We'll learn more about that in the coming episode. The people were demoralized and broken and there didn't seem to be any hope whatsoever. But Chizkiyahu maintained his faith. And even though he received terrible news from the prophet whose name is Yeshayahu, Isaiah, Chizkiyahu remained resolute and he said, I have a tradition from my great-grandfather David HaMelech, that even when a sharp sword rests on a person's neck, one is not to give up hope. We're in the business of hope. We're in the business of optimism. We're not in the business of throwing in the towel, surrendering and giving up. So as long as we can, we have optimism and hope. And Chizkyo turns to the wall, as the Gemara tells us in Masechet Brachot, and he prays with great fervor, and an incredible miracle happens that first night of Pesach. It's like the world's first virtual reality. Hashem, Almighty God, makes the armies of Sanharev suddenly perceive a massive attack unfolding on all sides. And in terror, they dropped everything and fled. Nobody else heard the noise, nobody else saw the lights. And this was an amazing miracle it was absolutely impossible to conceive of Jerusalem emerging triumphant, but they did. And this is a, a story which is elaborated on in different parts of the Gemara and the Medrash, and I've just shared some very brief headlines with you. So we can appreciate what our Gemara in Pentekelech, in this 11th chapter of Meseches Sanhedrin, is not telling us. So, in view of such an incredible miracle, you would have expected some kind of thanks, appreciation. Chizkiyot would have mustered the people, and together they should have expressed their gratitude to God. Chizkiyot, a man of great faith. Incredible faith. When there is no hope, he maintained hope, and he prayed to Hashem. He knew where his blessings were coming from, and yet didn't say Shira. He knew how to ask but seemed to forget to say thank you. A lot of people know how to ask. They don't know how to say thank you. So the Gemara says this was a gnai This was a terrible royal disgrace for Chizkiyahu and for his associates. How could they not have thanked Hashem publicly after experiencing such a miracle? very interesting that in the weeks leading up to the Six-Day War, there was not a lot of hope being peddled, not in the streets of Israel, and not in world capitals. People were openly discussing Holocaust scenarios. The enemies of Israel were planning to push the Jews into the sea. At that time, the chief rabbi of the IDF, Rabbi Shlomo Goran, sent people to size up local parks, like for example Gan in Jerusalem, to see how many people could be buried there if they had to turn it into a mass cemetery. These were the kinds of preparations people were making. If you watch newsreels, you know before they kind of changed history, before everybody forgot how frightened people were, you can get a sense. of of people who were waiting for impending doom and didn't see a way out. And an amazing miracle happened. In six days, that tiny state of Israel crushed the armies of its enemies. They never dreamed of taking Jerusalem back. They never dreamed of being able to go back to live in Hebron. They didn't even dream of these things. Had the Jordanians not opened the front, the Israeli army never would have attacked. They couldn't afford to open another front. And yet Hashem did all of these remarkable miracles. And if you look at the letters that the Rebbe wrote during the course of the summer of 1967, he expressed a tremendous amount of disappointment and frustration at the lack of public acknowledgement of the miracles that Hashem had done. He said so many miracles happened why is why is there silence on the front of the miracles so this was a gnay night it was a terrible thing now of course the gemara has to prove this where is it where do you get that from how do you know so the gemara says Lay amru shira. they didn't say shira But it doesn't mean they never said thank you at all. It says they didn't say Shira immediately. They didn't begin to thank Hashem right away. And we see this because... Until the land, proverbially, opened its mouth or opened itself and said, or sang Hashem's praise. For it is written from what you could translate as the edge of the earth, the corner of the earth, we heard song, glory, magnificence to the righteous, the etc. Now, I have to tell you that I had a very hard time understanding the proof. First of all, it's interesting to note the Gemara doesn't say, omru shira. It doesn't say they didn't say thank you at all. It says, omru shira ad shepascha haaretz. The problem was that it took too much time. In other words, it wasn't a natural reaction. So what does the Pasuk say? What does the verse actually say? The verse is from the 24th chapter of the prophecies of Yishayahu And these prophecies are, to the best of our understanding, not directed at any particular nation or government or civilization, nor is there a date that's given for the unfolding of these prophecies. The common message woven into the verses of chapter 24 of the book of Isaiah is uh, essentially a global disaster. We talk about like an international collapse of order and society and whether this is war or natural disasters or maybe as people perhaps read chapter 24 of isaiah today and and see within its frames a nuclear disaster being described the bottom line is was a it's a depiction of a a great awesome and terrible day that yeshayahu and Avi speaks of elsewhere and this is very different than the easygoing, optimistic, and illuminating tone that the that Isaiah, usually strikes. This is a d- destruction on, a, on an epic level. And it's very, very fierce. It's very, very clear. And very disturbing. And in the end, it heralds, it heralds um, universal change. Evil is destroyed and truth, and integrity, and honesty reign supreme, and ultimately, songs of praise for Hashem's salvation will be sung along with the ingathering of the nations. That's uh, the upshot of chapter 24 of Isaiah. So the 16th verse speaks not about apocalyptic disasters, but rather, it speaks about the, the response the response that seems to come from the edges of the earth. The Pesach says, miknaf ha'aretz zmiris shamainu. So what is, what is miknaf? So the Metsudotin says, from the edge. Like kitzei is the edge. And he says you find this, for example, in the term that's taken from the 38th chapter of the book of Job, Eov. But we say this in our daily davening. It's me kanfot ha'aretz. We speak about the four corners of the world. Although the world is round, and our sages always spoke about the world in circular terms, in spherical terms. So, why would we use the terminology square? Like some people thought the world was a box, you know, fall off the edge. <laughs> why, does it, why does it use that terminology? So, probably it's because the, the four corners are the furthest poles. The furthest poles, if you wanted to depict, it's like, it's like saying there's an expression, mizrach as east is far from west. So, so the four corners of anything will be the furthest poles. When you talk about a circle, there are no furthest poles. Everything is equidistant. But when you have a, a square or even more, if you have a, a rectangle, you're going to have s- corners that are very different distant from each other. A large square, the four most distant areas are the four corners that will be the most distant areas. So we euphemistically say coming from the corners, meaning the furthest outer reaches. So Miknafa's Shamainu, we heard, what did we hear? Zmir's Sheminu, we heard the, the sound of a jubilant song. Like the Radak, who also cross-references this uh, prophetic expression in the book of Job, he says, in other words, ba lanu. This message that's being broadcast and being trumpeted, it's coming to us from a faraway place. A faraway place. Okay, so what is going on? What does this mean? You look in, you look in, in Rashi, Rashi says, well, faraway doesn't mean the furthest reaches of the world, of civilization. But rather, it means the borders of Eretz Yisrael, The border of Eretz Yisrael. So, the outer scrimmage, the outer borders of the land of Israel. So, there's, there's this sound that's being heard from the outer borders of Eretz Yisrael, and it's saying, Tzvilotzad, the glory to the righteous. So, what does this mean? How does the Gemara see from this that Chizkio didn't sing Hashem's praises? So I I didn't know. That's the truth. I I, I actually couldn't figure this out. And we have a question on the chat. Could be for God the world is just a four-kingdom created by Alexander the Great. Mr. Zigzag, I do not understand your question. You have to explain it a little bit more clearly, and I can try to answer it to the best of my ability. All right, so I, I, like I was like really perplexed about this. I don't, I don't, I don't understand what the Drusha. I don't, I don't understand how the Gemara learns. Rashi says, G'nai, Dover Meguna. It's something uh, repugnant. It's really inappropriate. But unfortunately for us, Rashi did not choose to elucidate what exactly the limud, what the lesson from this is. You know, I I was talking to my father today about something, and I said to him, you know, I I can't figure out this Pesach. He says, you know, take a look in the Abarbanel. He usually has something illuminating to say. I said, all right, you know what? It's an interesting idea. I'm going to take a look. So I did, and the Abarbanel said like this. The Abarbanel says that this is talking about kibbutz galiot. This is talking about the ingathering of the exiles. How would you get there? So he says, so the verse, here, the verse here speaks of like we heard this from the edges. And he says, about Kibbutz Goliath, the prophet says, this by the way is Bilam the prophet. This week's Torah portion. I see it, but I don't see it now. I, I catch sight of it, but it's not immediate. So, therefore, Abarbanel says, Knafa Oretz, the edge of the earth, is actually speaking about the end of the world as we know it. You know, as Rabbi Adin saw some people call him Steinsaltz, as he used to say, he said, The coming of Mashiach is the end of human history. Human history is comprised of the failures and foibles, the, the triumphs, the victories, the competition of people, of civilizations. When Mashiach comes, all of that gets put to bed forever. It doesn't mean we cease to exist. It means history. Not time is different, but the history of humankind is going to be very different. So this is when it's talking about the edge. It's talking about the tachlis, the ultimate, the penultimate moment or purpose, not a, not a geography, but rather the end of the time in which we find ourselves. Z'miras Shemaynu. We're going to hear these these songs. Okay. So Abayranel says it's not talking about about a geography. It's talking about the end of time, and and you know. And I went back to Rashi, and Rashi does kind of. Speak about the end of time. He said, "Yeah, this is the song that's going to happen." He said, "This is the song that's going to be from, so to speak, the edge of the earth." However, there is an interesting cross reference, and the interesting cross reference is that the words or the term, the edge of Eretz Yisrael, the border of Eretz Yisrael, is described in the Song of Songs, in the fourth chapter. Tavo'i toshuri amana. There's going to come a, a sense of either song or this is a, a vision will come. Ammana. And Rashi there in Shira Shirim, tells us that the exiles, when they will just start to come back to the land of Israel, they won't be in the land of Israel yet. They'll just be at the borders and they'll, they'll already be singing the praises of Hashem. And that's the meaning of Toshuri Merosh that they're singing from the head of Amana, which there's a discussion of, you know, which mountain range, where is the peak of Amana? along with sneer and Khermon. And this is where we're going to see this, uh, this song that is going to, to break out. So there's a cross reference in the sages between this verse that's found in the Song of Songs and between what we're reading about in the prophecies of Yeshayahu Hanavi. So I think it goes something like this. I think here's how I pieced it together. And I, I could be wrong, but this is, I, can't, I had to figure this out some way and try to understand it. I think... That because Yishayo Hanovi lived in the time of Hiskiyah, and because we know elsewhere that Hu lases Hiskiyo Mashiach, that Hashem wanted to make Hiskiyahu Mashiach, and he was going to be a putative Mashiach. And there's even an opinion in the Gemara which is roundly dismissed and halachically disqualified. But that's the opinion of Rabbi Hillel, much later Hillel, the smaller Hillel, the minor Hillel, who said, you know, I, I don't know if Mashiach, the man, is going to come. There'll be a, the, the moment of messianic redemption, but it won't be led by a Messiah. And he's, his, it's, it's an idea. So when people come along and they will express this idea, we can say, wow, so interesting you thought of that. It's already been thought of. It's already been discussed. It's already been documented. And our sages dismissed it. But he was of the opinion that, you know, Chizkiyot was going to be the Mashiach, and it didn't work out because he didn't sing Hashem's praises, so that's it. Like We don't have a Mashiach now. It's going to be a mess- messianic era without a Mashiach, but in fact, that's not the halacha. And the Rambam is careful, Maimonides in his codes in chapter 11 of the Laws of Kings, is careful first to quote the verses that speak about a messianic age. That's from Parshat Nitzavim, from Deuteronomy. But then he goes back to the book of Numbers, to Parshat Boloch, to quote the prophecies of Bilam, which emphasize the prophecy specifically about the Mashiach individual. Two Mashiachs, the Mashiach, the first is David HaMelech, he begins the process, and then his great-great descendant, the Sion from the house of David, Emirza Hashem, David HaMelech's grandchild is the Mashiach, his grandson's Mashiach. So that's and it specifically points to an individual who will lead the world into a new era of peace and universal God consciousness. So what do we see in this verse? We see that the earth is singing. Well why is the earth singing? Well the earth singing is because the people aren't singing. And so the people are taking their cue almost because there's a song that's breaking out from, from the ground itself. Paschahaarat. And when Mashiach will come, we're going to get this right. Because when Mashiach will come Yeshayo and Navi saw very clearly that there will be songs sung. Not later on, immediately. We will recognize Hashem's miracles and we will respond appropriately. That's why we're learning this Gemara tonight. So we'll know what to do. Because we have to learn from our mistakes in order not to repeat them. And as you will soon see, the Gemara seems, seems to be telling us that the mistake that unfolded, it was a historic failing in the time of Chizkiyahu Navi, has roots in something that happened generations earlier. And I would surmise that they didn't learn the lesson or they weren't aware of this failing. And therefore, invariably, it kind of devolved into the situation where Chizkiyot and, and his associates who saw and knew the miracles firsthand didn't respond immediately. Eventually, of course, Chizkiyot thanks Hashem, but it's not the gushing forth in song and appreciation. And that's a problem. So the Gemara says that he didn't lay Amr Shira ad Shepascha Now, it seems to me also that Rabbi Papayas had a tradition, what you would call a drash, a homily in that verse. So there's a pshat, there's the literal meaning of this verse. The verse is talking about a futuristic prophecy that doesn't have a, a date attached to it. And we, and we really don't know exactly what it means, but it seems pretty clear that when the exiles will be coming home to the land of Israel, already they'll be singing, already they'll be thanking Hashem for His miracles, even though they haven't fully experienced them yet. Even though deliverance and salvation have not fully unfolded. So there's this tradition, apparently that, that of had that Yeshayahu Navi, when he speaks, not in a futuristic tense, not Zmires Nishmu or Yishmu, but Zmires Shomainu, We heard, we heard the song from the land, and it says Miknafa oretz not for the people, but the emphasis is on land, which sounds like geography. That it's when the song comes from, as they say from out there, that Chizkyo finally joined the chorus. But, but he was supposed to be the choir master. Instead he was joining a chorus that was coming in from the cold. So this is a, 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 ter- a terrible disgrace. It was not like, like an awful failing. And the Gemara says, We see something similar, and we see this with regard to the Jewish people when they left Mitzrayim. And here it gets very interesting. Because everybody knows that Moshe Rabbeinu and Yetziat Mitzrayim come a long time before Chizkiyot and Sancherev. So if, if the same story happened, if you will, twice, so why does the Gemara say, Badavar, something similar you can say. Happened, with Moshe Rabbeinu, and the Gemara says what happened with Moshe Rabbeinu. Jethro, the father-in-law of Moshe Rabbeinu said, Baruch Hashem, thank God, Asher hitsi who saved you. And indeed, we have a tradition. This is Rav Papias' homilies. He said, Tonamishum Rabbi Papayas. We learned in the name of Rabbi Papias, Moshe Riboy." It was a terrible failing, a real disgrace for Moshe Rabbeinu and the multitudes. The proverbial 600,000. They didn't say Baruch Hashem until Yisro came. And Yisro, Jethro, said, va-amar, va-amar baruch Hashem. So If it's the same story, if Rav Papayis has this teaching that we, the Jewish people, were an ungrateful nation and didn't sing Hashem's praises and didn't take note of His miracles until others started to praise, I mean, historically, you should first talk about the teaching of Rav Papayis with regard to Moshe Rabbeinu and the multitudes that left Mitzrayim. And then you would say, you know what? It's unfortunate. They never learn from their mistakes because all those generations later, Chizkiyahu did the same thing. This is very perplexing, right? It doesn't, doesn't seem to make sense. So the Ben Yehoyoda, the Ben Ish-chai has a marvelous explanation. He says, doesn't mean the same thing happened. It actually wasn't the same thing. Because we all know that Moshe Rabbeinu did say Shira. He did sing Hashem's praises. When? At the Sea. After they saw Vayar Yisrael say Yod ha-g'dayla. The scripture tells us when we read it in a davening every single day. They saw the great hand, the miracles that God had wrought. The nation expressed itself in a profusion of faith in God and His servant Moses. And at that moment of inspiration, then they poured forth in song. As Rashi tells us in his commentary, explaining the literal words of Allah, the it kind of welled up in his heart that he was going to sing a song now. So Moshe Rabbeinu sang Shira. Not only did he sing Shira, all the Jewish people was Moshe and the women, they were singing and they were led by Miriam and they did a better job than the men. They went off on the side where they were and the men and women sang separately. Yeah, the well, Jewish people have been doing that for as many, that many years and they had musical accompaniment too. So how could you say it's the same thing? as Chizki It doesn't even seem to make any sense. Mm-hmm. So the Ben Yehuda says, well, they did sing Shira. Well, why does he say, Kaya That's something similar. Aha, he says, because they didn't say Baruch. They didn't say Baruch. That's the key. They didn't say the word Baruch Hashem. They sang a Shira, but they didn't say Baruch Hashem. So I was thinking, and of course I could be wrong. You know why I tell you I'm thinking this? In case it's not right, you should know. It's not coming from a source. It's just my thoughts. Could be, I could be 100% wrong. I'm just going to share it with you anyway, because maybe maybe I'm not wrong. I don't know. It's an observation. This explains to me why it's not written in historical order, because what the Ben Yad is telling us is that what happened in the time of Moshe was not nearly as egregious as the time of Chizkiyot. So what happened? Well, I'll tell you what I think happened. I think that in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, the people said Shira, but didn't say Baruch Hashem, and we'll talk soon why that would be meaningful or what's the difference. But the, so they failed. It was some, somewhat of a failure. And because there was somewhat of a failure, as the generations went on, there's what we refer to uh, euphemistically as Yeridat HaDorot, the generations that are going away, lower, it gets lower, generation to generation, this Yeridat HaDorot. So at whatever happened in a minor way in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu and his generation, which was called the Dor Dea, the generation of knowledge, the generation that experienced so many miracles firsthand, and received the Torah from Hashem, the mistakes that they made left unchecked over the generations lead to a situation where we could have been redeemed. But what began as a, a slight imperfection over the generations kind of devolved into a huge blemish. And this is really how things go. If you leave things unchecked, you know, the, the, they say you, you keep, so to speak, pushing. You keep pushing the, the limits. So it became almost like a, a national failing. We became an ungrateful nation. And it begins because we didn't say Baruch. But of course, the question we have to ask ourselves is, so what if they didn't say Baruch? Like, we said Shira, I think we have a question. What songs did King David sing, Kimberly is asking? Um, King David sang many songs. King David redacted a whole book of songs called Sefer Tehillim. So, you're right. King David, I don't think, suffered from this. But something did happen. So, some, somebody went wrong somewhere. And I, and I think that this expresses itself... In the most egregious form in the time of Chizkiyahu, King Hezekiah. And so we learned first that Papaya says, G'nai-hu. G'nai, G'nai, Rashi says, is a Dover Meguna. It's, it's an ugly thing, a repugnant thing, a real failing. It doesn't say G'nai about Moshe. But then it says, K'yotze bedover, Kayotze something similar. And then the Gemara says there was a Ganai for Moshe. Now, the Maharsha, in his commentary, he says, so Yisro was the first one to say Baruch Hashem? Really? Um, that's a little bit incorrect. Don't we hear about Eliezer, the servant of Avraham, who said Baruch Hashem? Don't we hear about Noach sang Baruch Hashem. And the marshal says yes. I mean, they, they said Baruch Hashem on a personal level, but there's, Yisrael said something not for a, a unique moment for him personally, but he thanked Hashem for a major event, for what happened for the nation. And it's not to say that Yisrael was the first one to say Baruch Hashem. On the contrary, precisely because there was a precedent a precedent from Noah and a precedent from Eliezer, the servant of Avram. Precisely because that was the precedent, the Jewish people should have known what to do. They should have known to say, thank you, Hashem. They knew how to kvetch. They knew how to complain. They knew how to pray. When the Egyptians were burying them behind them, it says they cried out to Hashem. When things got really bad in Mitzrayim. they cried out to Hashem. They knew how to pray and ask for help. and That's a good thing. But You have to remember to say thank you after. So so what was the failing in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu? What's wrong if they did or didn't say Baruch? What's so special about Baruch? So they didn't say Baruch, big deal. It's a good question. It's a very good question. So the Mepharshim actually talk about this. There are a number of answers as to why Baruch is a big deal. He said Shira, but didn't say Baruch. Okay, so they didn't say Baruch, big deal. So first of all, there's, there's, there's one very interesting explanation which is found in a commentary on the Talmud known as the Divrei Shaul. And, and he bases what he says on the words of the Shalah, And by the way, that's where I got tipped off to this verse in Shir Hashirim. He, he actually... I forgot where I learned it from. So he actually sent me off to Shir Hashirim, to the Reish, Rash, Rashamana. And Divrei Shaul's point is this. He says... When Mashiach is going to come, as we see from that pasuk, from that verse that speaks about miknaf ha'aretz, from the edge of the earth, that there's going to be z'miro chamanu tzvila tzedek, there's going to be this praise, this praise for Hashem, that that the exiles will not yet have fully experienced the glory of Hashem. They will not yet fully have tasted redemption. They won't yet be in Israel. They're just at the border crossing. They're just, they're just at customs. At the Amarna mountains. Amana mountain range. And already they're singing Hashem's praise. So he says, this means that the, the right time to sing Hashem's praise, the right time to say thank you isn't later on but immediate. I would use the term, it has to be a visceral response. It has to be innate. If you, you have to gush forth, you have to react. Delayed reactions are hardly a reaction. Delayed reactions are, they're like canned. It, it lacks a certain authenticity. It, it almost lacks integrity. It's not real real is a visceral response when you react later it's like you know i thought about this i probably should say thank you so when when you do a favor for somebody and and they you know a week later quote, by the way thank you very much i really appreciated what you did for me it's oftentimes did they really appreciate it did, did the wife tell them they should say thank you did they realize it themselves did the uh, is, is it a formality, a checklist? Whereas when somebody says, thank you, you know that it's genuine. So thank you to Hashem has to be immediate. And, and the Divrishol says a fascinating thing. He says, Moshe Rabbeinu and the children of Israel who left Mitzrayim did indeed say thank you. When did they say thank you? When did they say thank you? He says, a week after they left Egypt. In other words, before they knew that the Egyptians were pursuing them, at the time when we read in the scripture, Ubnei Yisrael the Jewish people are leaving Egypt triumphantly. It's only several days later that the Egyptians receive the message that the Pharaoh decides we're going to pursue them, these, these slaves and bring them home. Bring them back to slavery. And it's only on the seventh day when they turn around and see the Egyptian army. And it's only then when they see all the Egyptian soldiers, the enemies washing onto their remains, the human remains washing onto the seashore. And they know that their enemies are vanquished forever. Then, Allah believe them, then they poured forth a week later. We don't find the Shira on the day they left. And so the Deva Shal says an amazing thing. He says, the problem, the problem was the delay. Whereas Yisro, as soon as he heard what happened, he said, Baruch Hashem. He came to the desert. Moshe Rabbeinu told him. He said, Baruch Hashem, it's amazing. It's fantastic. So why did Yisro respond that way? But the Jewish people didn't. That's a problem. So this is a Gnai Godel. This is a, so to speak, a big mistake. And, and you know, this, like the explanation, it really speaks to me. Because if all of this is accurate, if all this is correct, this is the Pshat Gemara. you see how there was a devolution. From the times of Moshe Rabbeinu, where there was a delayed Shira, to the times of Hiskio, that we don't even know of a mass Shirah. We don't even hear about a big thank you, Tasha. Just kind of is taken for granted. The thank yous, the prayers, they, they were all in the foxholes. They were all when everything looked bad. But then it got good, so everything was okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna repeat a, a very corny joke that I've shared so many times. But it does pack a punch and make a point point. And, and so the story is that this this guy is late for a meeting a very important meeting and uh, you know a lot hinges on, on this meeting and, and he's late now he's he's not going to be there he can't find parking this is not good and he starts to pray and he says God if you give me a parking space I'll, I'll come to Shul every day and as he says these words just two cars up ahead he sees the blinker go on and the car's about to pull out he says forget it God I just found a parking space. So <laughs> when everything's bad, we're like, my initial, please, God help me. And then he helps no. Okay, God, I'm fine now. Yeah, of course you're fine now. <laughs> Who helped you? Who helped me? What do you mean? I, I'm it's I almighty. I'm i I'm intuitive and and perceptive, wise and capable, talented, and diligent. What do you mean? Who why am I successful? Oh, God helps those who help themselves. Emphasis, underline, bold and italicized. I help myself. God, God helped little too. <laughs> yeah. There was a, one of my sons told me that he heard from somebody. That there was somebody, this he heard from this person was leaving the Rebbe's sec, uh, room. And it was, the Rebbe had either asked this person to do something or expected this person. And the person says to the Rebbe, Hashem will help. So the Rebbe says, you'll do it. Hashem will help. So the Rebbe smiled and he said, Hashem does everything. <laughs> we have to help. <laughs> Hashem's going to help. You're going to do it. I guess that person needed a gentle reminder. So we have to know that Hashem does everything. We have, we have the privilege of covering Hashem's his footsteps, of making it look natural, because Torah says we should make this keli, cre- create the convention and the envelope. But we have to be mindful of the fact that it's always from Hashem. And this, this really, it resonates and it, and it brings things forth in a very clear way. So they, and, that, and, that's, and that's perhaps brought out in the fullest way because, because they didn't say Baruch. Okay, so, so what's up with Baruch? So they didn't say Baruch, but they said Shirah. So when we take the Divrishol's approach, it's, it's really nice. They said Shira a week late. But the thing is, the Gemara doesn't actually say that. The Gemara says, amar baruch. They didn't say Baruch. So one explanation that's given, and this is... Um, the Anaf Yosef kind of lifts us out of strands that he takes from a tapestry woven by Rabiarnis and Abishitz by the de Devash. He says that there's, there's a, a Gemara that tells us that when the Jewish people crossed the Red Sea, it was just as day was breaking, it was still night. And the Malachim, the angels, wanted to say, Shira. And Hashem said to the Malachim, I don't want to hear your Shira. I want to hear the shiro from the Jewish people. You be quiet now. I don't want to hear angelic song. I want to hear, I want to hear from the people. So the Medrash tells us that during the day the Malachim say, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. And at night they say, Baruch. Baruch. They say, Baruch. So, Kaddish or Baruch. There's like this Kaddish and Baruch. And day, day is Kaddish and night is Baruch. So, the Jewish people were supposed to take the place of the Malachim. The Malachim didn't say Baruch. And they should say Baruch. But instead, they said Shira. It didn't say Baruch. Okay. It's like, you know, it's almost like a, it's like, a, like a technicality. What does it mean? What does it mean? So, this is what I think it means. This is what I think it means. That's what I think it means. Firstly, Where does does the Torah tell us that we have to make a bracha? You know, we Jewish people make a lot of brachas. So where does the Torah tell us it's an obligation, biblically, to recite a bracha, a blessing, to God? So there's only one place in the Torah where it says this. And biblically, there is only one instance in which we are obligated to make a bracha. And that is after. The meal. The Torah tells us, You eat, you're sated, now make a bracha. Now make a bracha. So the question is, what about the bracha before we eat? You say, ah, that's rabbinic. The rabbis understood that if you should make a bracha after you eat, you should probably make a bracha before you eat also. And there's all kinds of fascinating details of how this comes together and how the rabbis coined the phraseology of the blessings, which we continue to say until this very day. But the question is, why didn't the Torah require that? I was once uh, with a convocation of many non-Jews. It's like a, it was a, a law enforcement event. I was there as a police chaplain. And, and they said, who will say grace? We'll say grace, and somebody said, "Let the rabbi say grace." I said, "Would you say grace?" He said, no, "Sure, say grace." So he said, "The first thing I want to tell you is that we actually say grace after the meals." And they said, "Really? Shouldn't we be mindful of God before you eat?" We're, we're mindful of God. I said, "Yeah, we're mindful of God also before we eat, but we say grace after meals." They said, "Why?" I said, "I'll tell you why." because hungry people have no problem praying. Before you eat, before you're sated, before you're satisfied, it's like the paradigm of no atheists in the foxholes. Everything's bad, everybody's praying. So so that's almost uh, innate. It's It's almost natural, reflexive. Yiddishkeit doesn't want us to do what comes easily naturally what's reflexive. Yiddishkeit wants us to overcome our nature and to take the path of greatest resistance and that our devotion to Hashem should not come easily, organically or naturally, but rather it should come with effort and toil. And in fact, the more effort you invest in a mitzvah, the more valuable the mitzvah is. That's why we say L'fum tzara, agra, according to the pain, is the gain. So it gets really interesting here. So what happens is, is that it's after we eat and feel good about ourselves that we forget about God. Like, like my friend looking for the parking space. And Very interestingly, in the verses right after Bechat Amazon, the Torah describes what will happen when we become very prosperous. It says we have botem, We get these homes, estates that are filled with all kinds of bounty. And then and then the verse says we become corpulent, overstuffed with material success and pleasure. And then we say, my valor, my might, my intuition and talent, my hard work and my my diligence, I did this. It's human nature. We feel smug upon success. When we're hungry, we're not so smug. When we're worried, when 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 we're anxious, we're not smug, we're humble. But afterwards, we're not so humble anymore then you know that being humble before Hashem is a tremendous achievement. Especially if it doesn't come naturally. Especially when we're successful and then we're humble in front of Hashem. <laughs> now you're talking. So this really is where the Gemara shows up with the word Baruch, Bracha. So this is what I was thinking. So I was thinking based on, what, what the Divri Shaul says and what I saw from the other Mepharshim, I said to myself, aha, so this is really the issue. See, it was after the success that all of a sudden we forgot to cry out. We, we didn't viscerally respond. When we turned around and saw the Mitzrayim coming, we said, God, what would you do to us? What's going to happen over here? And then after the Egyptians are finished, they said, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't so quick. We left Mitzrayim, we didn't burst into song. We suddenly felt very triumphant. And it was only like a week later where we finally knew, yeah, we, we really have to thank Hashem. So the Baruch should have been the reaction. And that's the way, in the way the, the Anaf Yosef, kind of building on the Arist Vasha is saying, even, even when we said Shira, we were saying Shira, we were not saying Baruch. And Baruch is this idea of, of thanking Hashem. And here's where it gets uh, really fascinating. So, I looked in the book of Torah education, the Sefer Achinuch. This is a Sefer of one of the Rishonim. We talked about it many times. We we don't even know with certainty who wrote it. We think it was the great Rabbi Aaron Halevi of Barcelona. Talking, uh, you know, 15th century. It's an old book. It's an old book, a very important book. So, the Sefer Achinuch, he talks about the philosophy Reason, the, you know, like the rationale of mitzvahs, along with the laws of mitzvahs. And it goes according to the Parsha of the Week. And in, in his own preface, he says, he wrote this because his children were playing games on Shabbat afternoon, but he wanted to interest them, so he wrote them a book to read. This is <laughs> this book written for children that scholars rack their brains over. So he says like this. He says, on the mitzvah of Berchat Hamazon, in Parshat Ekev, he says, so what does it mean when we say Baruch? He says, Baruch atah Hashem. blessed are you God. So what does that mean? He says it does not mean La Hosif you're blessing God? Seriously? Oh, it's very nice of you to bless God. God says, I'm really glad you blessed me because I wasn't having a good day. But now you gave me a blessing. It makes no sense. Who ha'adon al he is the master of everything. But when you get a blessing from somebody it's like, it's like novelty. It's bringing something new, something fresh. It's, it's actuating something, revealing a potential. It's, it's bringing forth. But how could you bring forth anything for God? It doesn't make any sense. So he says, look here. We all know you do a hadavar maforsim. Hashem baruch Hu kolanim. So God does everything. And he created humanity in a world that's teeming with life. But the reason he created the, per, the, perp, the person, the human was, so that the human should subdue the world, should harness and sublimate the world. <inaudible> Hashem wants good for us. He wants good for us. He wants us to be meritorious so that we should be able to receive this goodness, this bounty from him. And this is actually, if you will, where God gets nachas, so to speak. Because, because you can't be good unless you're giving to others. You're good by virtue of what you give to others. The measure of your goodness is how good you are to others, not how good you are to yourself. So, ah, he's a really good guy. He is? Yeah, he takes such good care of himself. That makes no sense. This is a really good person. He is? Why? Because he's so good to others. So Hashem creates us. He should be native, we're like others, and he's being good to us. And this is a very easy thing to understand, he says. So Hashem, God wishes to pour blessing upon us. So what does he tell us to do? He tells us that we should recite a bracha. nafsheinu That we should awaken our soul, by virtue of the words that we say, by virtue of the thanks we articulate. Because God whom you're blessing, who is of course blessed, God is the one who is doing all these things. And when you bless Hashem, which really means you acknowledge Hashem as the source of all goodness, so then that makes you meritorious. You praise Hashem. You understand that everything comes from Hashem. And in doing so, That's how we bring God's blessings upon us. And very interesting in the, in the uh, version that I have of the Sefer HaChinuch, he, he brings a fascinating cross-reference. He says that the Avud Raham, Avud Raham says something very similar. He says the Baruch, when it comes to God, is that you're blessing God. Of course not, he says. He says, God is blessed. Like, He is merciful. And what we're trying to do is, <laughs> ein roti avur ela lezakot <laughs> We should merit His blessings. And he says that this is something very similar that the Rashba wrote as well. Rabbeinu the II writes this in Parsha Sekev. So this is an idea which is discussed. And very interestingly, when you look in the teachings of Hasidus, so the concept of bracha is explained in the terms of bracha v'hamshacha. Bracha means to actualize, to bring forth, to to kind of create a downflow in our world. That's what a bracha is about. So what does this mean then? So the people didn't say didn't say baruch. So so why is that so? Why is that so important? Like why is that so meaningful? So again, here's what I think, and, and the next piece of Gemara is going to ratify this. At least I think it's going to ratify it. So Moshe Rabbeinu's people sang a song of praise. But, but what did, how did they change? They were inspired. They were swept up in the euphoria, eventually, of the moment, but they, they still didn't say Baruch. They still didn't bring this holiness down. I mean, they were quetching. At the very next stop, they didn't change. It's not only about singing shira, which is in a profusion or an expression of faith towards Hashem, but it's also about bringing Hashem into our lives. They said shira, they didn't say baruch. So this, if, if, if this is all correct, and I think it is, It kind of frames the story with Chizkiyot. You know, Chizkiyot, they weren't even expressing themselves in the Shira. They weren't even reacting. And the lack of reaction, or the delayed reaction, came because in Moshe Rabbeinu's time there was a delayed reaction. And perhaps even more troubling was the fact that it was a reaction, an expression of thanks, but not a baruch. not, Not a transformation of you. You have to transform yourself by virtue of what happens. And, 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 I, and I think that the proof that I'm on the right page is from the next piece of Gemara. Because the Gemara comes along and says, you know, it's interesting. You talked about Jethro. Let's talk about Jethro. What, what happened next? What, what difference does it make? Th- this wasn't about Jethro. This was about Chizkiyahu. And actually, we only said, something similar happened with the Jewish people. It wasn't about Jethro. It wasn't about Yisro at all. Yet, the Gemara now is going to discuss Yisro. And you'll see, because the Gemara discusses, so what did Yisro do next? What did he do after he said, Baruch Hashem? And the answer, the Gemara says, Vayichad Yisro. Vayichad is translated as, and Yisro rejoiced. So Zalman is saying, Rabbi, I have a question. We say Shira every day without the word Baruch, but we're still bringing it down. Zalman, right after Oz Yosher, we say Yishtabach, and then we say, we start Birchot Kriya Shema, the blessings of Shema. So we say the Shira is Halaluka, we say this Psuke, the verses of praises, and it goes directly into the blessings, the Baruchas of Shema. So you ask a good question something, but that's and that's exactly I think the answer, if if I'm right about this. And the point, the proof of the pudding is Vayichad Yisro. Yisra rejoiced. Yisro rejoiced. So the Gemara says, Rav v'shmur. There's two opinions about how to best explain the word Vayichad Yisro. Rav and shmur. Rav Omar, Rav says that the intention of the verse Vayichod means, which means, which has a common root with the word sharp. Hever cherev al besoreh. He passed a sharp implement, a sharp sword upon his flesh. Now there is only one part of your body you're ever allowed to take a knife to. And that is your bris milah. A Jew is proscribed from tampering with his physical body. This is very politically incorrect. Please forgive me. Tattoos are not permitted in the Jewish faith. They're not a good idea. They disfigure your body and your soul from a Torah perspective. And the truth is, elective surgery is not necessarily permitted according to halacha. There's a fascinating response from Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who was asked about a woman who nebach suffered from breast cancer and had a mastectomy. And she asked shayla, is she allowed to have like a, a, a reparative surgery to kind of put her body back together? Rabbi Moshe says yes. And the question was if, sh- if they could create like the appearance of, of darker, a darker skin, like where the nipple would be. With, and there's a form of tattooing and Avisha discusses this Avisha Finch discusses and he rules yes it's permitted in that case so it's not so simple you know the, the, to, to 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 cut yourself is a is a violation of the torah so if Yisro took something sharp to himself we know it could only mean one thing and that's Brismila so so that's what Rav says he he was he he, he put a sharp sword across his flesh this refers to what the world calls today circumcision the shmuel says nasa chidudin chidudin, that his it was like there was tiny cuts made all over his flesh like his flesh was like serrated some people call it goosebumps his flesh was like prickly he felt as if there were little cuts all over his body why so the gemara says i'll tell you why because when he heard from moshe rabbeinu what happened to the egyptians it was difficult for him to swallow this he had it was painful for him rashi says (laughs) that he circumcised himself in his gyre. and he converted there's a whole discussion from the Ramban what exactly this means. Because usually you go to the Brismila, and then you go to the mikveh. And here it says he had a Brismila, in his Geyer, but if he took it to himself, he wasn't Jewish. How could he give himself a brismillah? A whole, there's a whole discussion about this in the Mifarsham. Some of them want to suggest that according to Ramban, bideved, if a person immersed in a mikveh and did the Brismila after, it's still a kosher gear. It's not the way it's done, but it would still work. And that's what Yisro did. At any rate, chidud and wrote, khidudn, khidudn, and Rashi says means and k'moten, like wrinkles. Goosebumps. Little, like little cuts. me'od It was very painful to hear about the liberation of the Egyptian army. So, then it gets really interesting. Rav starts to comment on the in- interpretation of Shmuel. Amarav, aha this is exactly what people mean when they say that that when a person converts even ten generations later you have to be very careful do not embarrass his ancestry so to speak before him he translates uh, you don't disparage a Gentile before a person who converted even ten generations later and, and Rashi says, <laughs> Bnei Adam. This is like a parable. It's a euphemism. Umihu <laughs> Yisrael wasn't the 10th generation. He was himself a convert. However, the other Mepharshim suggests that there is a 10th element here because Yisro was descended from the son of the original Mitzrayim 10 generations earlier. So he felt a kinship across 10 generations. So the Rashi saying literally, says this is, this is as they say. However, ultimately, as Rabbeinu Bechaya says in his commentary on Shmuel, Rabbeinu Bechaya ben Asher, he says that this is, he was actually a 10th generation, so it kind of works out. And Rabbi Kiv Eger brings this in this Gelin So this is very important I'm going to share with you now. The Ion Yaakov says that although Rav and Shmuel oftentimes argued in this case, they're not arguing. How would you know that? He says, I'll tell you how I know that. Because usually, when the Gemara says, Rav and Shmuel, the Gemara follows with, Chad Omar and Chad Omar. One said this, and one said that. The Gemara doesn't say that here. The Gemara says, Rav Omar and Shmuel Omar. Rav and Shmuel both separately said, So, the fact that it's worded differently indicates that they're not arguing, and it's really quite fascinating to note that Shmuel, Rav, is commenting on Shmuel's words. Now, what's the drasha? So, so the Mashah explains that the drasha goes like this. The drasha is if you wanted to say Yisro had a brismila, you should have said, Vayamal. It doesn't say Vayamal. It says, Vayichad. It says, Vayichad. So, why does he say Vayichad? Because he was happy. Aha. Uh-huh. If he was happy, why does it say Vayismach? Why does it say Vayichad? So, there's like, he was happy, but there's something else that happened here too. And the other would say, what would Shmuel say? He says, Vayichad, Yisro, Yisro was happy. I'll call HaTovah, on all the goodness to Israel. Why doesn't it say he was happy about what happened? Well, because he wasn't exactly happy about what happened. He was just happy about the result. But what happened bothered him. So that's why the Torah uses the word Vayichad. And the point, I guess, is this. Rav and Shmuel both agree. They both agree that he had a brasmila, And they both agree that he wasn't so happy. So, so, so why, do they, why do they explain the verse in different ways? Each one explains a different element of the verse. And here's what I want to suggest. I would like to suggest that this business of Vayichad Yisro is talked about immediately after the story of Chizkiyot failing. The ungrateful nation in the time of Chizkiyot, which is rooted in the ungrateful nation in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. That even though they sang Shira, they didn't say Baruch. They didn't actualize. But Yisro, on the other hand, he did. He, was, he said Baruch Hashem. What's the next thing he did? He had a brismila. And even if we say, "Nasib," sorry, chidudin, chidudin, that it was hard for him to rejoice because, okay, it was hard for him to rejoice. But he forced himself to rejoice. He said, no, these are my people. I know I come from Egyptians. I know I was there, a part of the Pharaoh's cabinet at one point. And I know that... But in it, it's not intuitive. It wasn't a natural rejoicing. It was an avodas Hashem, a toil, and effort kind of rejoicing. Aha. So it is the same message. One says that he actually took the knife. He actually made the Brismila. That's the toil. Shmuel says the emphasis isn't so much on what he did. It was how he remade himself. How he forced himself to rejoice in what Hashem had done for Am Yisrael. Embracing his new identity. The commonality of both explanations is Yisrael did something. Did something against his nature. Did something that was difficult after saying Baruch Hashem. And if I'm right, I don't know if I am, but if I'm right, the Gemara fits together like a hand in a glove. It's just, it sings off the page. And it's a very powerful message here. It's a twofold powerful message. And the first is that when you, when you experience a kindness from Hashem, you have to erupt, and thanksgiving don't let me think about that oh you know I think I should be thanks- thankful for that it shouldn't require a great deal of contemplation and the second is that when you reach that visceral response as it should be when you live with an attitude of gratitude and Thanksgiving when you undo the innate ungrateful gene we have as an ungrateful nation you live as a grateful yid, then you have to take that gratitude and harness and channel and translate it into an act of holiness and into a remaking of our persona and our being. This is uh, some of the beautiful messages and lessons that are contained in this little piece of Gemara that we had the privilege to study together. Hopefully, we've learned our lessons well And mashiach will soon come and if mashiach's coming was delayed because there was a lack of gratefulness surely all of us can live with a greater sense of gratitude and i must tell you that after the gulf war i remember very vividly how the rebbe was talking about week after week and he wrote a pastoral letter after encouraging people to recognize the incredible miracles that had happened and to sing hashem's praises let us sing hashem's praises let us notice the acts of deliverance and salvation, those small little moments of Hashgah Pratas, as they unfold, let us thank Hashem and let us translate that sentiment into action and into a sense of inner transformation. And this will be Ezra Hashem with the help of Hashem, catalyze the great transformation, the coming of Mashiach, the Meherah, Obi Amenu, speedily and in our days. Amen. Thank you so much for joining. Have a beautiful evening.